If you have a Bible, go to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, as you're doing that, I want to ask you a question. Why do we do what we do? That's a really big question, right? But as you start to think about that, uh, and you look at your life, there are things in your life that you do in a certain way because it's what you do. Does that make sense? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are like really type A, or you're like really, um, you know, you've got like, let's just take this. How many of you have a morning routine? Show of hands. Some of you are lying. Some of you are like, my morning routine is I don't have a morning routine and you're going to back off and I'm going to hit my snooze button, right? Like that's a morning routine. But think about your morning rituals, right? Think about that. Why do you do what you do in the morning? It's an interesting thought, right? I I was doing a little bit of research and I found a few self-help experts and I'm not sure any of it's legit science, uh, though a lot is claimed. Um, But even a quick Google or YouTube search on morning routines will give you thousands upon thousands upon thousands of articles and blog posts. And uh, I mean, everything from Forbes to like Joe's morning routine, you know, like like uh, there are tons and tons of opinions that if you do these five things when you get out of bed, if you if you set your alarm not at 6 a.m. but 5.56 a.m., you're going to make it. You're going to make something in your life. And I'm like, I, I don't know that those four minutes are going to change my life. All right. But the, the bottom line is, is according to them, every decision you make in life matters. Right. And so some of you identify that and. Uh, get up and follow a strict routine, but but we do it to maximize our day, right? There's a lot of things that we do in a certain way. Even in church, we've been guilty of that, right? Where we get in a routine of doing things a certain way, and we 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 get we get mixed up. What are the things that actually matter? What are the things that actually change things? And what are the things that Uh, don't matter. But whether or not your morning routine matters, it's important to recognize that your spiritual routine matters. That your spiritual routine matters. There are a lot of things in the Christian life that matter, even even that matter a lot to your spiritual joy and happiness and fulfillment. However, not only do those activities matter, but the order in which they flow matters. Another way to say or think about that is, why do we do what we do? Why does what we do matter? See, because when you look in the Bible and you look at Mark chapter 7, you're introduced to this group of people called the Pharisees. Right? And if you've been in church for any amount of time, uh, you know about the Pharisees. You know what the Pharisees were all about, but they were the rule keepers. They were the keepers of the law. They were the people that made sure that they were doing everything right because they were, and they wanted you to know it. And then they were to make sure that you did everything right. And if you didn't do everything right, they had no problems. Like some of you are introverts, and like you're like, I'm not going to confront them because that, you know, it's going to be uncomfortable, right? And and they weren't. They were like. You're bad. You're going to go to hell. And if you don't do this, this and this, shape up, right? Like what's wrong with you? And so, but they get a bad rap, right? And yet, if we're honest, 
and each one of us look inside of our own heart and inside of our own life. If you got saved like yesterday, you're like, what are you talking about? Right. But just give it time. Right. You're going to come to enjoy certain things about the way things are done. And even in the way that you chose this church, maybe it's because you enjoy the way things are are done. But the bottom line is that when we look at Christianity, there is a temptation to get things out of order. There's a temptation to elevate the things that I enjoy, the things that I prefer, the things that I think are important over what God actually says is important. And so as we come to Mark chapter 7, and we're going to look at the first 13 verses, but as you come to that, the context is is kind of interesting as we lead into it, because the context, the immediate context is this, John the Baptist gets beheaded. For standing up to the king who was living a lifestyle that was wrong in leadership. It moves from that into the feeding of the 5,000. A miraculous event where Jesus does something only Jesus can do. And then the, then the story moves to Jesus sending his, his disciples out onto the water. And then he meets them out there by walking on the water. And we, we tend to think of that story as like, wow, can you imagine? But the text actually says that they didn't understand what happened at the feeding of the 5,000. And therefore, when they were seeing him walk on the water, they were terrified. And it says their hearts were hardened. So even in the right activities, you, you and I have, have danger to harden our heart. Even in the midst of seeing good things. I mean, so, well, I mean, just think about it. You're like, if I was in a boat and somebody came walking across the water, I would freak out. But then if they told me they were Jesus, um, how would you respond? You know, a lot of times we make fun of like the disciples or we make fun of the Pharisees. And it's just like, think about the things that Jesus was saying. And like, then your mom tells you that ghosts aren't real. And then this dude comes walking on the water. You're like. I don't know how to, I'm terrified, I'm hardened in my heart. This is the setting in which it comes. And then the Bible says that Jesus goes into towns and begins to do a lot of miracles, a lot of healing, a lot of supernatural things to show who he is. And then we come to Mark chapter 7. So these big, massive things are happening, but people don't understand them. And then Jesus brings it home to the people that ought to know him the best. The keepers of the law, the, the religious folk. And, and here's what Mark says in chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Follow along with me. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. They observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean That is unwashed hands. Can I get an amen from all the moms in the room? Right? You're like, I'm a Pharisee. My children will wash their hands every time they eat. Hallelujah. Right? But then verse 3 says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. 
And there are many other customs they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. I was tracking with them until they got to the dining couch, right? Like, how many of you wash your couch before you eat, right? You're like, nope, just Netflix. Netflix and chill, right? Is that what they say nowadays? I don't know. But look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. So the Pharisees and scribes asked him, this is Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands? Okay, at this point, people are recognizing there's something different about this guy. Something different about Jesus. He's bringing different things to the table. Feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, healing people that nobody has even been willing to be around because it would make you unclean. He's, he's changing things. He's messing up the status quo. And before we point fingers at the Pharisees, let's be real. When somebody comes in and messes up your status quo, we wrestle with that. Every one of us wrestles with that. I do. I wrestle with it all the time. Right. Like like even in the simplest things, I'm going to pick on my kids again. It's just like if somebody if one of my children walks in at two in the morning and wakes me up, I'm like my whole next day is ruined. Right. Like like you broke my sleep pattern. Some of you are laughing because it happened to you last night. Right. And uh, so uh, that's a no, I'm not going there. Anyways, I was going to it's going to rabbit trail. I'm coming back, coming back. So the Pharisees ask a legitimate question because because what what do we see in Scripture people calling Jesus? We see them. We see them calling him rabbi. Right. And so he was a rabbi. And so he has his disciples. And and that part of the story wasn't confusing. They understood that. But what they didn't understand is why, if you're doing all of these incredible things and you're a rabbi and you've garnered this unusual group to be your disciples but you know you're you're helping people maybe like why aren't you having them do the things that they're supposed to do right jake preached a few weeks ago about how jesus went and spent time with sinners right that he spent time with the unclean and and they're looking at him saying why aren't you doing the things you're supposed to do when you when you are with your disciples and when you're with? Why aren't you calling them to the spiritual disciplines that the law has set up? That's a fair question, right? Because we do it, too. We, we do it, too. Like, you know, when we're uh, engaging with lost people who don't know Jesus, you know, we're most of the time doing it with an end game, Right. We're not just seeing them as people made in the image of God that need to meet Jesus. That's the purity of it. But oftentimes we have other motives in our heart, right? I do as a pastor. I'm like, man, you should totally come to church. <laughs> when what they need is Jesus and then he'll handle the coming to church, right? So, so we're like, even like I'm guilty of this at times. And so... Maybe we should identify more with the Pharisees today. Like this is a legit question. This is something that we would ask. And so they do. Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? Why aren't they getting up early, reading their Bible, singing a worship song, kissing their children on the forehead, and then going to work? 
and witnessing to everybody that comes across. Like, they're asking real questions because these were the normal things that people did who were religious. And so listen to what Jesus' answer is, though. In verse 6, he answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. (laughs) Well, that that escalated quickly. (laughs) As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. He also said to them, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever speaks evil of a father or mother must be put to death. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is Corban. That is an offering devoted to God. You no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many other similar things. Now we could dive into all those details, but... Um, We're not going to. I want to stay higher than that and just encourage you to get a study Bible. Right. And and there's some there's some good things in there that you ought to consider. And I would encourage you to do that this week. Uh, But for the sake of time, I want to stay back and think about this, because there's there's a temptation to read this passage and have a few different reactions to it. If you're a fairly new Christian or you're new to religion or you're new to church, uh, you might think these guys were crazy. Like, what does that stuff matter? Like, I mean, yeah, you should wash your pans before you eat. Fine. Maybe not the couch, but, you know, it's a little weird, right? But to each their own. And they kind of were crazy. They were intensely worried about a lot of external things. But aren't, but aren't you, aren't I? Aren't we intensely worried about a lot of external things? Because we, we read certain passages in the Bible and we go, makes me uncomfortable. Like, hate your father and mother. You're like, whoa. Or, you know, pick up your cross and follow me. Well, that could be this or that. <laughs> like, like, no, like it means cross. Like it means death. It means dying to yourself. And, and we read some of that. and But we're... we're Motivated by a lot of external factors, aren't we? Is it comfortable? Is it nice? Is it good? Is it fun for me? Is it we're we're, we're tempted to be in that space? And if we're honest with ourselves, we're guilty of a lot of those same things just with a 21st century spin. If you are if if you are a Christian, if you're not a Christian, I mean, um, or no, I just talked about that. If you're a seasoned Christian is what I meant to say. So if you've been doing this for a long time, we're we're guilty of the same thing because ironically we look at the Pharisees and think they're all wrong and that we have it all right. Well, what's wrong with looking at somebody else and saying that they have it all wrong and we have it all right? That's wrong. But that would be my temptation, right? To look at somebody like that and think like, why would you even care about that stuff? I mean, Jesus is right in front of you. Why would you care about the routine of ceremonially unclean things. Why would you care about that? 
but we're guilty of so many of the same things because um, if you aren't a Christian, let me let me let you in a little secret. Christians are hypocrites. Christians are hypocrites. Dot dot dot. Just like you, <laughs> right? There there isn't a human being on the planet that isn't a hypocrite, right? You've seen the memes, right? The church is full of hypocrites, and there's room for one more, right? Like like that's true. We all are. Uh, the thing that hopefully separates Christianity is the fact that we're willing to say, I am. I am one. Because if we're, if we're not there, if we're not willing to say that, we have no use for Jesus. Right? This is why Jesus said things like, I've come for the lost. I've come for the broken. I've come to set the captive free. Or he said things that we studied the other week that he uh, came for the sick, not for the healthy. If you think you're healthy, you're not going to have much use for Jesus. And so all those things are important. But verse 9 is a massive principle for those of us that are Christians and gives us the keys to our own soul, keys to our own heart, and keys to our own motives. Listening to what Jesus said, he said, You have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. And maybe in our 21st century, we need to substitute the word tradition for preference. Because that's what it is. That's what it is. We have perfected the ways of keeping things within our own preference, haven't we? Now, I'm not saying there's not legitimate reasons to not do something or do something. There are. This book is full of them. And you should follow them. However, there's a lot of things that aren't in this book that are just simply our preferences. And I have them, and you have them, and we have to work through them to get into this space of perfect unity. When good things become God things, they become bad things. If you're taking notes, that would be a good thing to write down and pray about. When good things become God things, they become bad things. Right? Because would anyone look at these Pharisees and say, you probably shouldn't wash your hands before you eat? Would anybody say that? No, but when it's, when it's, a, when it's a way to get right with God, we look at that and say, that's crazy. And we're guilty of some of those things. But listen to what Isaiah 42, 8 says. Here's what he says. I am the Lord. That is my name. And I will not give my glory to another or praise to idols. What's an idol? Anything that I've set up in my heart that will steal glory from God. Anything. It can be the Buddha on your neighbor's shelf. But it can be your Instagram. It can be your car. It can be your job. It can be your kids. It can be your spouse. It can be yourself. It can be the way you dress. It can be anything that Satan can use. That the demonic forces that we wrestle against and talked about last week. Any of those things that can steal glory from God and give it to you. Spiritually speaking, our heart matters. Good activity 
worship, evangelism, discipleship only matter if they come from love, not for love. And that's what this boils down to is the Pharisees were doing a lot of the right things for a lot of the wrong reasons. And if you and I aren't careful, we will end up doing the exact same thing. It won't be about washing your dining couch, probably. But there will be a laundry list of other things that Satan will try to use in your life to keep you from doing the things that glorify God. I think that's why Romans 2.4 asks this pertinent question. Because on the surface it sounds crazy, but, but listen, to what, listen to what Paul said. He said, or do you despise the riches of his kindness, of his restraint and patience? Not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. It's actually the kindness of God that brings you to the place where you say, I need help. I need to turn from some certain things. Right? Do you ever wonder why Jesus didn't do more of the like going into the temple with the whip thing? Right? Like... <laughs> That's probably what I would like when I was on the cross and they're like, if you were God, why don't you just come down? I'd be like, done, you know, boom, it would be like be the best superhero movie ever. But he didn't do that. Why? Because he's God and I'm not right. Because it's his kindness that leads to repentance. What if he had done the superhero movie thing? None of us would have the cross to be kneeling at. Easter wouldn't be a thing that brings you life, eternal life. Think about the billions of people who have met Jesus since that moment that Jesus laid down his life. Wow. So the Pharisees ask a good question in verse 5. Why don't your disciples do these things that they're supposed to do? Because they're caught up in the process. They're caught up in the activity They're not caught up in the person. You see, because if you get caught up in the person, you'll end up doing the process. But it starts with the person. Jesus answered them in verse 6 and 7. He said, said, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And so you just end up worshiping in vain. What is God after? He's after your heart. He's after your heart because on the negative side, the Bible says your heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? But on the positive side, out of it flow all the wellsprings of life. So whoever gets your heart gets your worship. Whoever gets your worship gets your life. What are you worshiping? Jesus isn't saying you shouldn't do anything that Christians ought to do. But he is giving us a loving warning that the formula matters. And I love this warning because I hear it from a father's heart, right? I hear it from the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. Paul in Romans 5, at the end of the chapter, into verse, in the chapter 6, lays it out perfectly, right? Because he lived it. He lived what we're living. Look at verse 20 of Romans 5. It will be on the screen for you. The law came along to multiply the trespass. To make sure you knew that you were a sinner. The law stands in front of you like a giant mirror at the gym when you don't look the way you want to look. Right? 
that's just a full mirror. The law shows you who you really are. But where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. That's the gospel. You didn't deserve it, and he gave it anyway. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What should we say then? Should we continue to sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Starts with the heart. It starts with grace will reign in your life through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus. <laughs> wow. Hypocrites are those of us who do the right things on the outside for the wrong reasons on the inside. But if we can fall in love for the right reasons on the inside, it will eventually transfer to the outside. That's why Jesus said, by your fruit, you will know people. But oftentimes we look at fruit as one moment. You messed up, bad you. Right? Like, you're done. But what, what's beautiful about God? With God, a day is but a thousand, and a thousand but a day. Right? God doesn't see time the way you and I see time. God doesn't get offended the way that you and I get offended. Thankfully. Jesus said in verse 8 that we find ourselves in a place where we've abandoned the command of God. What's the command of God? Mark told us back in chapter 1, verse 15, it said, repent and believe the good news. What was the command of God? Repent. Just turn from your way and believe in this good news that Jesus has come and done for you, which you can never do for yourself. It seems so simple. The formula is simple. Obedience does not equal love, but love will equal obedience. That's the formula. We're working from salvation, not for salvation. It is actually, for those of you that have been in the church for a long time, you know this, it's actually quite easy to slowly slide towards loving God with our words Honoring him with our praises while adapting his words to fit our needs. And we end up worshiping God in vain because we actually love an idolized version of our own spiritual selves being fulfilled rather than loving our good God who gives us a good word that we need. So how does that happen to us? How do we how do we slide down that slide? It's pride. It's pride. I struggle with it so bad. I just confess that to you. Pride. We're all in this together. We're all susceptible to thinking more of ourselves than we ought. But how does God feel about pride? If you just Google that, there, there is a plethora of verses about how God feels about pride. But there's one that I think sums it up perfectly in James chapter 4, verse 6. The Bible says this, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he said, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The Bible says that God is ready and moving and giving greater grace. He's, he's grace, 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 grace. And the only thing that puts the wall in front of his grace is our own pride. 
we got to lay, lay down at the foot of the cross. We got to get rid of our pride. We got to drop our pride. C.S. Lewis says it eloquently when he writes in his book, Mere Christianity. Here's what he says. There's one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else and which hardly any people except maybe Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. There's no fault which makes man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride. You and I know that. What's, what's the thing that can get in the way the most of my relationship with God? Me. It's not you. And even when I'm offended by something you do, it's because it hurt my pride. Right? That, that, that's the greatest vice. The wider issue between Jesus and the Pharisees in this moment is who is going to speak for God? Am I going to hold the power or is he going to hold the power? It's pride. The Pharisees have been building for nearly 200 years an agenda that was both political and religious. And they weren't going to let this guy screw it up. And so they crucified him. Little did they know he was behind the scenes working all things together for good to those that love him. But they weren't going to let this crazy guy from Nazareth mess that up. Let me ask you a question. Are you going to let this crazy guy from Nazareth mess your plans up? It's a tough call. Jesus wasn't simply offering another tradition or an abstract idea. By his whole kingdom movement, he was challenging a way of life. And he's doing that for you and I in the 21st century because there's a certain way of life that we have grown to love and become accustomed to. Are you willing to let Jesus mess that up? If his kingdom was coming in the work he was doing, healing outcasts, eating with sinners, rolling back demonic forces, then the layers of Pharisaic tradition are simply ruled out and proved powerless. And so are ours. This is true for us as a worshiping community, as a church body. We're always in danger of getting on our hobby horse or our agenda or our passion or our sinful ways. I am. I'm always in danger of that as you are. But Jesus is offering us a different way. Amen. He's offering us a different way. He's offering unity, love, sacrifice, and joy because we work from salvation, not for salvation. I love Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, right? It's just got everything there. In verse 8, it says, For by grace are you saved through faith. And that it's God's gift. It's not for yourselves, not from works, so that no one can boast. Why? There's this glorious grace that's given because we're his workmanship. Have you been depressed today when you walked in here? I want you to know that you are God's workmanship. And it doesn't matter what anybody else in the world says about you. God says you are mine. And I don't make mistakes. 
You're exactly who I wanted you to be. And you're in the right place at the right time. And nobody can take that from you because you're God's workmanship. And why? Because you were created in Christ Jesus for good works. God has good things prepared for you to do. Ahead of time. He knew where you'd be today. He knew you what you'd be struggling with today. And he still showed up in your life. And he's still been faithful. And he's going to be faithful. And he has those things set out for you to do. And you can do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because it's about what he's doing through you. Not about what you're doing for him. Amen. God saves. And then God works. Notice how all the pressure is on him. None of it is about what you bring to the table. It's all about what he's doing through you.